0: I was just going to wait for it. I was hoping it would stop before I unmuted my mic. Very loud ambulances today on this podcast. Hey there, welcome to Hot Take Down, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 20th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at Five Thirty Eight. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi Neil.
1: Hey Sarah, how's it going?
0: Great. So um, did you
2: win your survivor pool pick this week?
1: Well, I picked against you know, the Jets. So
2: I'm not gonna accept I'm not gonna accept just trolling me before <laughs> I've even been introduced.
0: Hey, I'm asking a question to are question.
2: I know what you're doing, and you're trolling me. <laughs>
0: That irate voice you hear is 5:38 contributor Jeff Foster. Good morning, Jeff. How are
2: you? Good morning. Let's go back to Neil and find out if he won. Find out if he won now that I've been introduced. (laughs) I already confirmed that. I picked against the Jets, so yes.
0: So then I guess my follow-up question, my natural follow-up question, Jeff, is did you win your Survivor pick?
2: You know, I didn't. Interesting. And I'm beginning to think... (laughs) I'm not very good at this.
0: <laughs> I
2: and I do think me and my Jets fandom uniquely um, works against me.
0: So you I mean, and your picks had nothing to do with the Jets. You picked the, uh, the Patriots to beat the Broncos and the Broncos randomly. I mean, that was a surprise.
2: That wasn't yeah, like, well, a, well, I mean, they, they were good 10 point, I mean, actually, I think they ended up being only like a touchdown dog, but they were still one of the biggest dogs of the week. It wasn't crazy.
0: No, I, I was not actually trolling you. I was just teasing you. There is a difference, a distinct difference. <laughs>
2: Wait, what is the difference? I, I don't know. I thought, I thought they were synonymous.
0: No, I mean, I wasn't like, I, I wasn't blasting your pick. I was just, you just you just had a little bit of bad luck here. All right. So the pick order this week is Sarah Jeff Neal. So I get the, the Jets pick, which is awesome. Um, all right. And yes. I'm going to take my pick, and it's going to be the Buffalo Bills over your New York Jets, and I feel feel pretty good about that. Are the Jets going to win a game this season? Seriously, do we think that they are? Well,
2: I mean, there's, uh, just looking ahead, let's just look ahead. This week, they're 12.5-point <laughs> dogs. Yeah, it's a week, lot. Eight, week 8, they're 18. This is just early lines. I mean, who knows if these are true? 18.5-point dogs. Um, then they're 8-point dogs. And then they have a bye, it appears, of some kind. Then they bounce right back. Nine and a half point, dog. Wait, which week is their bye?
0: I want to figure out who else I'm going to pick
2: Week nine, I think. Or uh, no, ten now. Uh, It keeps moving. So uh, so the game right now, based on the lines where it looks like their only time they might have a chance, would be week 12 against these Dolphins that just shut them out. Um, But they're at home with no crowd. So, maybe <laughs> okay. that game? Other than that, yeah. I mean, I don't know. The Raiders? Uh, the Raiders are kind of good. Like, the Browns? The Browns are kind of good. And then they end with New England? Yeah, they might not win a game. This could be an 0-16 team. Oof. All right. Well, now that we've
0: established that. By the way, that, that uh,
2: whole thing was a long stall while I tried yeah. to figure out who I was picking. <laughs>
0: The problem with stalling while you're t- going while you're talking is that it's hard to then do the thinking that you need to do.
2: It was really hard. It was, it was kind of pointless. <laughs> this week's tough. This it is, is tough. Um, I'm going to go with the, uh, oof, the chargers. I'm going with the chargers.
0: That's not a That's bad a good pick. Yeah. That's a good pick. It's a good line. It just
2: doesn't feel right. I mean, I, I, I said yeah. chargers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what but but um you know Justin Herbert, he looked good the other night when I watched him. He looked legit. Uh so maybe.
0: Yeah. All right, Neil, who you got?
2: You know, this is always bad
1: when you pick your own team to win, but I'm gonna take the Philadelphia Eagles at home with a sparsely populated crowd at the link against the New York football giants who uh, are part of both of these teams are really uh, part of why the NFC East is so God awful. But I think yeah. that this seems like if you can't take the jets, maybe pick against the giants.
0: <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's, that's where we stand. Uh, and yeah, we'll see how we'll see how those go this Sounds week.
2: sad. <laughs> Normally I would be moan not talking about the NFL more, but I'm just, I, it's, it's just, it's just sadness. I know all Again,
0: all three of our teams are really bad. I know right. your team is <sighs> a special terribleness. Don't, don't compare the two. Okay.
2: You know
1: what? You're I think after this week, the Vikings can at least be in that conversation. They looked horrible and I just, I can't believe no, that we can't I, make excuses for them anymore.
2: Know, I, bet, <laughs> I, bet, I bet the Vikings win seven games.
1: There's no, what's their record <laughs> right They're now? Winning. How are they going to get to seven wins?
2: Yeah. They win six more games.
1: <laughs> they don't have six more wins than them. Did you yeah. see them?
0: They're, Kirk Cousins might not last this season. Yeah, he might they not have- get six
2: starts <laughs> they have what is the most exciting rookie wide receiver that we've seen in this league since probably like i don't know julio or something he he looks amazing they still have a lot of talent six wins six more wins this you is counter trolling, me. trolling, this is yeah. trolling. <laughs> then bet me then bet me
1: season. i'm taking the under on seven jeff
0: yeah okay well now that we've had our weekly vikings jets fight we can move on i like neil's just sitting there as an eagles fan and the eagles are also terrible but he's like i've won the super bowl recently i'm fine
1: oh yeah i feel good about that (laughs) Yeah. that'll last another 50 years i
0: think absolutely on today's show we're all about baseball as the world series begins tonight The Los Angeles Dodgers will try to end their three-decade championship drought, and the Tampa Bay Rays will make only their second appearance in the Fall Classic. We'll discuss what we and our model think about the two best teams meeting in the World Series, which doesn't actually happen all that often. Then we'll talk a little bit about the mismatched finances of the Rays and Dodgers, and what a win for either team would mean for the future of Moneyball. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our Rabbit Hole of the Week. Although they took different paths, both the Rays and the Dodgers have already had some nail-biting moments this postseason. But Game 7 of the NLCS was pretty epic, with Cody Bellinger hitting a go-ahead homer to sink the Atlanta Braves' pennant chances, and then dislocating his shoulder while celebrating. Whoops. The Dodgers are clear favorites in our model and are, of course, a richer club from a bigger market and with more stars than the deliberately scrappy Rays. But on the Rich Eisen show, Hall of Famer and former Braves pitcher John Smoltz praised the Dodgers for being more than the sum of their parts and winning by getting a lot of the little things right.
3: So you can go over a football script and how you want scenario A, B, C, D, and E right. to work, and sometimes it does. But you got to you got to adjust on the fly, and I think they, they they did that. You know, there's so much pressure on Dave Roberts and the and the and the Dodgers because of the past. Um, I don't even like call failures but lack of execution and you know the narrative was getting stronger and stronger the more this series played out and so for that to finish the way it did there's a collective sigh of relief that I think now they can play this World Series a little bit more straight up if you will and and I think that would be that would serve them well their offense was dormant early and then they woke up their offense is what makes them so unique and they walk They they just grind out at bats, and at the at the end of the day, they just they won the battle of the intangibles that don't measure in the metrics of you know analytics. They won that battle, whether it was base running, defense, taking a walk; those little things is what they did better.
0: So, (laughs) leaving aside for the moment whether base running and defense fall outside the realm of analytics, do you guys think Smoltz is right here? Neil, can their win over the Braves be boiled down to? intangibles instead of those pesky analytics.
1: Well, you know, uh, to a certain extent, I think that's right. Uh, if if you look at the top line numbers for the series, you know, the Dodgers and Braves, they both hit about 250 in that series. But there's a huge advantage in what uh, the stat that Bill James calls secondary average, which looks at all the things outside of batting average that a team can do, which includes hitting for power, stolen bases, walks, all of that. Uh, and the Dodgers had a much higher secondary average. However, I don't think that it really boils down to that as much as they Just hit a ton of home runs, and a lot of their guys that had been cold early in the series started to heat up again, and some of the guys that were hot stayed hot, like Corey Seager continued to just assault the Braves. Just the Dodgers power hitting, I think really kind of came to the to the forefront late in that series as they were, we, they reminded us of it early when they had that almost comeback in game two and then just mercy ruled the Braves instantly <laughs> in game three. But the Braves generally had done a pretty good job of keeping them in check and at least limiting the damage to, you know, confining it to uh, just like that one game or just the, the ninth inning of, of game two up until... Midway through the series. And then the Dodgers just were able to kind of put things together with a lot more consistency. I do
0: think it's funny when when analysts want just don't want to talk about stats and want to talk about that, that certain something that a team has when they've made it this far. Like also, the team was built to hit home runs and did. Like, so Yay, analytics. I mean, like, wh- I, d- I just I don't understand why we always have to talk about that intangible thing. Why we have to, like, fall back on the, they have great team chemistry instead of, like, they, they're all good players, and they did their jobs really well. <laughs> well,
1: and to me, and we'll talk about them in a second, but the Rays, to me, are the much greater example of a team sort of rising above the sum of their parts and doing the little things and timing things right uh, in that series that uh, went against the Astros than in the Dodgers went over the Braves.
2: Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm not really sure what he's talking about. <laughs> I like it. You know, I'm, I'm looking, looking ahead for- in the script, about intangibles. I, what are we talking about exactly? I mean, isn't this baseball? Like, shouldn't he know? Isn't this how baseball generally works? Like a bunch of little things happen and they have huge consequences when you're playing a seven-game series? But, you know, that's just part of the game. I mean, like, obviously there's a few base-running blunders by the Braves there. Um, you know, in game seven for sure, in game six, you know, rundowns and, and losing outs on the base paths. I don't know, Neil, does that mean their base running is is always bad and they this we could have seen this happening? Probably not, right? I I don't I would guess that's not a very predictive stat.
1: Well, we can measure it uh and and the Braves base running actually was better than the Dodgers during that's the regular season. They were right. 12th that's in in runs like, added, for the Dodgers were 22nd. So, yeah, yeah I, th- really- I think that, I mean, if anything, Mookie Betts, I think, was the king of uh, obviously the big things to a certain extent. But he delivered some kind of home run robbery, some kind of spectacular leaping catch, some kind of throw where he gunned someone down. So I think he is sort of the there's a reason he's one of the best players in baseball. Uh, and and it's not just the big things. It's also the little things that he does. But also, you know, Cody Bellinger hitting a home run 5,000 miles, uh, <laughs> goes a long way to, to, to winning a, a series, I think.
2: But, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, a lot of baseball is about who's hot now, not who has been hot for the last four. Well, in this case, what, two months and <laughs> Bellinger, who was pretty mediocre in previous playoffs and, uh, or well, last year, certainly. And, and, Really, most of the regular
0: season. Yeah,
2: (laughs) most of uh, this entire regular season is now hot. But he's a good player, and and you know that could have gone the other way. It's gone the other way for Bellinger.
0: For sure. I guess my point is none of those things are divorced from like analytics. I mean, like Mookie Betts is a is a guy who can rob a home run, who can make a, a great play. I mean, his defense is measurable and good. And like so, none of that. I mean, all of that is amazing when you're watching the game, but it's not like, oh well, that's look. There's a win against the stats community. Like, what, what? No, it's not. I don't. I think we just want to believe that there's something magical that happens in the playoffs. That's that's you can't account for, or plan for, or build for. I mean, well, let's talk about the Rays. You know, there are. You know, there there's this like the magic of of Randy or Ray's Arena, you know, or whatever. But they also. Kevin Cash stuck to his script. He pulled pitchers after um, a couple times through the rotation. He was pretty consistent there throughout that series and got some grief from the announcers anyway, watching it, but it worked. It ended up working anyway. So I don't know. Are there, were there, what are the intangibles there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think the, the Rays are the, the example of, of the intangibles, because if you look at the stats in that series, by all rights, they probably shouldn't have won. The Astros had a 751 OPS. The Rays had a six 75 OPS in that series. Uh, And and if you look at something like fielding independent pitching, the Astros were better, yet somehow the Rays had a lower ERA in the series. Uh, If you look at the the rate at which the Rays stranded people on base, their pitchers left runners on base 88% of the time, which is an astronomically high level. So they were pitching themselves sort of into trouble, but then pitching themselves out of trouble. That's an example of something that might be a little bit fluky, a little bit outside the realm of what we as Sabermetrics people would think was repeatable, certainly, uh, along with the gap between ERA and, and fielding independent pitching. Some of that's defense, but again, the Astros had a higher defensive efficiency rating too in terms of turning balls and in play into outs. Obviously, the Rays scored more runs, uh, uh, outscored them by three, but the, the more granular numbers almost really uh, favored the Astros more. And so to me, that's an example of a team that sort of rose above the sum of their parts. And that's before we get into Randy or Rosarena, who had had not played for the Rays until, I want to say, late August. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then he actually had a really good OPS. I think it was over a thousand during the regular season, but he just didn't play that much. He had failed a a COVID-19 test earlier in the season. And he's just this revelation. Uh, I think he's tied for the second most home runs anyone has ever had in a single postseason. It's a little bit of an asterisk on that because the um, the postseason is much longer this year. Uh, but I think by any measure, he's been the star uh, of, of the postseason. But that's not something someone could have seen coming either. I think if you just look at the, the the team that the Rays had the earned the first seed in the AL with during the regular season.
0: Neil, you wrote a piece previewing the se- the series. Is the bullpen the sharpest contrast between the Dodgers and Rays? Or is there some other thing that you think really distinguishes these two teams?
1: Well, if we're talking about the strengths and weaknesses of the team, you know, bullpen-wise, the Rays definitely have the reputation for being like the ultimate bullpenning team. And they were fourth in uh, wins above replacement from their bullpen during the regular season. But the Dodgers were fifth. The Dodgers, you know, we sort of uh, don't give them maybe as much credit as they deserve for their bullpen. I think the things like defense and base running might be uh, the bigger contrast in favor of the Rays and and, and some more of those little things, right? The things that, (laughs) that we talk about. Whereas the Dodgers are a much better hitting team. Uh, and, and they scored the most runs in Major League Baseball during the, the regular season. They were first in wins above replacement. I mean, the Rays had some, some good performances. Brandon Lau, who was ice cold, by the way, uh, in the postseason so far. Uh, but it, he had a great season as their best hitter during the regular season. Maybe he's due for an improvement of sorts in the World Series. But this is not the type of team where, you know, you look at the Dodgers lineup from top to bottom and you're just like, oh, my God, they, they they have somebody that can do serious damage to you every slot through the order. The Rays have gotten some of that to a certain extent through a Arena. I mean, that's what's fascinating about them is they maybe were like a hitter short looking ahead going into the postseason where we were like, well, where are they going to get the offense from? Well, it's coming from it's almost like you added like a you know, all star caliber player without even having to do it because he was already in your system and he's playing that well. I wonder about regression to the mean, though, with him, because I don't think he's going to maintain a 1300 OPS going forward. But again, he had the 1000 OPS in the in the regular season, people kind of forget that they act like he's kind of come out of totally nowhere. He's just
2: kind of come out of (laughs) nowhere. I mean, if I was to make uh, if I was to make the sort of because I don't really believe in, you know, what Smoltzy here is talking about. But um, if I was to make that argument, what I would say is I think there is something to the fact that a lot of these guys, you know, were scrappy type players. And a lot of these guys, like there is kind of a nothing to lose aspect Whereas, you know, players like Bellinger and Kershaw, and uh, we haven't quite seen it from bets, but they they do sometimes have this kind of like added pressure put on themselves and maybe overthink it. But whereas the Rays are just kind of like, F it, we're going to do what we're going to do. Maybe we'll win a World Series. If I was going to make that argument, I do think that nothing to lose attitude is contagious on that team.
0: I think you're, yeah, let's get some effort. Let's just do it. T shirts made up for the Rays, and that can be their team slogan.
2: Which is funny because that's the type
1: of mentality that I think you would have more if you were like the Astros and you were felt kind of embattled or like you had this sub 500 record. I think
3: they did have whatever. that.
1: Attitude. And they did have that attitude, but I'm saying the Rays, we're talking about them. Like they're, you know, this scrappy, you know, underdog team. And certainly, uh, if you look at the payrolls, and again, we'll talk about that later too, they have the right to feel that way. But you can only milk the whole like nobody believed in us thing so much. But of course, every every team wants no one to believe in them. That's that's the thing now that you that you want to do if you're motivating yourself.
0: I do, you know, and I wonder too if if this, I mean, maybe the rays would have been obscure. Um, no matter what season we were in. But but this season being weird and different and not with with teams only playing other teams in their division and the, the division in the opposite um, league, you know, nobody's really... Not as many people know about the Rays or have seen the Rays play their own team anyway as as would have happened in a normal season. So I wonder if that has something to do with it too. Which then brings me to like <laughs> 2020... As with every sport happening, when baseball started, there was a lot of talk about, you know, asterisks and legitimacy and, um, you know, would whoever wins actually, like, would they deserve it or whatever? Jeff, what does it mean that the two top-ranked teams are meeting in this World Series? Does it it change how we should think about the 2020 season?
2: I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I'm trying to avoid a sort of a trap here, because let's say this <laughs> was a really wacky World Series. If it was, uh, you know, Blue Jays Cardinals yeah. or yeah. Blue Jays Brewers or something like really weird, like if this had kind of broken the other way, then I think everyone will be saying, well, it's not a, this. Look at this. Look what happens with this uh, new format. This isn't a real World Series. And I don't think you can say that that door swings both. Like, I, I don't think this is, this is how it worked out, but I don't think this is the product of the system or, or anything like that. Um. So I was always going to, I was always going to not put an asterisk on this season and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to put an asterisk on this season, obviously now, but I don't think we need to give any special awards that like everything worked. Look what happened. The best, the best teams survived, um, so it was a true fair system. Um, it was it was a, just like any other year. I, I don't want to give it too much credit because baseball's random. It just happened to work out this way.
0: No, I, I think that's a good point, and I and I agree with that. I will say that I think if the Astros had made the World Series, we'd be having a different conversation about whether like whether the the expanded playoffs were good or bad or whatever. Also, we'd be you know talking about the cheating and that forever and ever. So I, I do, I kind of, th- I think it's good for maybe good for me personally and my tolerance for nonsense. Um, But good for baseball that the Astros didn't make the world series. And we, we didn't have to deal with that aspect of it because they were not a good team. They were not a good team during the regular season. And, you, you know, we would have had to have that like tension between what the regular season meant and what the
2: playoffs mean. But then you could ask, would would they have been a good team uh, across a normal length regular season?
0: Right, and that would have been the conversation, right? Um... Yeah,
2: and I guess we can't have it both
1: ways. Where I I would have probably made the case if the Astros had made it that well, this proved that they were you know good all along, and that sixty games isn't enough. You know, any team can have a bad sixty games, and they were great last year. And this you know maybe even proves that the cheating didn't matter that much. Although we did say going into the season that. 162 game. The improvement in in uh, certainty between 162 and 60 is not that large. You know, it's not uh, it's it's not the lion's share of the certainty being added about who's good and who's not. So, if anything, maybe this is a vindication of that, or it just could be random noise.
0: Yeah, I think maybe it's okay that we didn't have to have the conversation about about it again and like explaining that to people again, and we can just be like, oh yeah, the Rays and the Dodgers, they're the two best teams. What's your prediction? What do you think's gonna happen? We got we were so right with the with the NBA finals. Let's see what we can do. Um, You did, and I took the Lakers. You do, and I both did, but in seven, we were close. (laughs) It ended up
1: being six. That's not too far off.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, who are you taking? Who are you? Who are you taking in the world
2: series? Too many predictions. It's just setting myself up for failure. Left and right.
0: It's okay. I'm taking the
2: I'm taking the uh, the Dodgers in six.
0: Ooh, nice. How about you, Neil?
1: I'm I'm gonna go Dodgers in seven.
0: Interesting. Uh hmm, should I take the Rays? No, I'm not gonna take the Rays. I do really do like the Rays. You but know you no, want to. I'm not gonna. Um I'm gonna stick with the model and I'm gonna stick with um I'm gonna stick with Mookie Betts. I uh, I follow where more Mookie Betts leads me. Um I'll take the Dodgers in five. How do you like that? Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> a little variety there. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Don't worry, we'll be right back to talk about more baseball in a moment. So we talked a little bit about the mismatch between the Dodgers and the Rays in terms of our model, but the way in which they're being compared the most right now is financial. The entire Tampa Bay Rays roster at full season contract amounts accounts for a payroll of just under $29 million dollars, which is only $3 million less than what the Dodgers paid just for Clayton Kershaw and Mookie Betts. (laughs) There have been many articles written in the past week or so about how the Rays cheap and analytic approach to recruiting and trading away talent goes against the spirit of baseball or is bad for baseball or something. On the Athletics Rates and Barrels podcast, though, former Rays pitcher and current Minnesota twin, Jake Odorizzi, articulated a more nuanced version of what's potentially tricky about the Rays system.
4: I think the thing that's complicated for me as, like, you know, someone who's been there and been through the ringer of, all right, you get to a certain dollar figure, you're out the door type right. of thing. yeah. I kind of, I don't pride myself on it but I feel like I'm one of the one outliers of they traded me and they didn't get the better end of the deal so (laughs) that's that's like a huge feather in my cap I guess so um yeah they seem to win every trade (laughs) exactly so I, I I broke that streak I guess for for them but uh you know it was bound to happen at some point but the thing the thing with with their model and I think to where it gets the pushback and as a player I can understand it a little bit is you know, all these guys that you see in their bullpen, a lot of people may or may not have heard of them, like that uh, Thompson, Fairbanks, like all these guys, are, they, they've they been in the minor leagues and they bring them up and they're unique and they're, they're really good. And then to a certain point, then it's like, okay, now we need to turn that over. So they get the best out of those guys for that period of time where they're making the least amount of money and mm-hmm. they flip them over. And then where do they go from there? Like, what's their career like after that? Like, what if they got... Used too much there. And then their career was a little bit different after they got out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's obviously you can't, it's hard to really look in the future and like, you'd have to go back and like, look at all these players. And, like, okay, what happened after what happened mm-hmm. after that sort of a thing. So that's my one thing as a player is they're not abusing these guys. I'm I'm not saying that in the least bit, but mm-hmm. it's like, they're going to get the most out of their young guys when they're least expensive.
0: Jeff, what do you think about this argument? Is it, is it fair to fault the Rays for having this you know, constant carousel of young players who get pulled in to fulfill specific needs and then maybe can get, you know, kind of chewed up and spit out.
2: I actually don't think that's fair, frankly, because this is what you have to do when you don't have, you know, deep coffers to to pull from and to sign these big free agents or to, to maintain these players. They they know they're going on a cheap budget and this is what you have to do. And, and what it means is, once guys kind of break out, you got to get rid of them because you can no longer afford them. So, you know, look at like Chris Archer. Chris Archer was their ace a few years ago. He looked awesome. They, they just had to trade him immediately. Um, and who they get in return, they got Glassnow and, and Meadows, who are key parts of this team. That's just what they're going to do. So there will be, if if you're one who likes this sort of Cal Ripken, Chipper Jones, same guy, sticks around, Derek Jeter, always, you know, retire the number, been there, the whole team. You're not going to see that on the Rays um, ever. But I don't really know who that's unfair to. I mean, the players are still getting a chance to break out. I mean, Udurizzi got contracts of other teams, you know, it's not like he, they, they, they break out and then they get thrown in the dustbin of baseball and never play again. Um, If they're good, they get a chance to succeed. If they're good, they will get a job somewhere else and get a lot more money somewhere else.
1: Well, and I don't think it's the Rays fault. The Rays are just sort of the symptom of the, the problem with baseball, which is that the, the, the players are most valuable, especially in like a strict net, you know, value for the money sense, when they are, you know, very young, when they first break through, and they're on the pre arbitration, or even the arbitration, you know, contract, uh, the team has Essentially, total control over how much they're being paid, and and the Rays are sort of the reason they've been com- so competitive on such a, a small budget is because they have mastered this as much as any other team. The Rays are playing the game as well as they can within the rules that are in place right now. It's the rules that need changing. Uh, it's not Tampa's fault specifically that they're you know doing a great job within those rules.
0: Yeah, it's like we fixed half of the like not great model before. It was great. It was better for players, right? Because, you know, there were more 30 year old and above guys getting huge free agent contracts. There were also a lot more guys using steroids then and extending their careers longer. So, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah. And and if the Rays didn't do it, some other team would, you know, it's it's sort of this race to the bottom, uh, especially now that you consider, you know, it's no coincidence that Andrew Friedman. Started out general manager of the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. He's now the president of baseball operations for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers are doing a lot of the same stuff that we would associate in a previous era with, you know, sabermetric team, moneyball type teams. They shift a lot. They use a lot of positional versatility. Uh, and these are all kind of hallmarks of like the Rays way of playing baseball. But now every team is doing it, including the Dodgers, who have more money than God. It, it is really this um, this arms race that every team in baseball is doing now. And what are we supposed to think? Uh, ask the Rays to not do it and, and lose as a result, but have some kind of moral high ground as a result?
2: It's also not that easy to replicate. I mean, if I was if I was running a front office and I saw what the Rays were doing, I'd be like, "Woof. Sounds a lot easier just to go get Bryce Harper, um, you know, than have to Make a yeah. million decisions and put a lot of uh, use all these pieces and, um, you know, get the right coaches and get all get the right farm system and get everything working and trade guys when they're uh before they approach free age. I mean, it's it's daunting and you have to make the right decisions. I mean, credit to them, they do make very good decisions often. Just go, go look at their roster construction and the trades they've made, they're usually on the right side of these trades. And you know, whether you're rich or 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 you're poor you can't you can't make dumb trades and make dumb signings um you can do that on a small level or a high level I think. well
0: and I th- I think it's interesting the the point that Jake Oterizzi was trying to make is that like well you know I was one of the few players that got traded away and was like not you know actually played well after I left Tampa but that's not like Tampa's fault so the players can you know try to beat that and be good
2: (laughs) if anything look baseball to a certain extent is a meritocracy if you if you do well and you do well on this stage when everyone's watching you're gonna get money somewhere someone else will pay you And, and if you're in the bullpen you're inherently not a starter or not good enough to be a starter so you're already looking for work and you're looking for innings to prove what you can do um so i don't i don't really get that so much
0: also if you are someone who can pitch out of the bullpen, you're you're with any kind of uh, effectiveness at all, you're going to find a job because bullpens are exactly. often a disaster. And, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean so, you know, as we talked about this, like this is what most we're living in the moneyball era and most teams have some kind of, you know, they're looking for efficiencies. If they're not, they're probably not particularly well-run teams right now. Um but that kind of goes back to the to the beginning of the Moneyball era. Neil, you wrote a great story um, about Billy Bean and his legacy with the Oakland A's, if he is, in fact, done with baseball, as has been reported. Um, would a World Series win for the Rays change any other bigger franchise's calculus at all about how to build a team? Or have they already sort of made the changes that they're going to make and the, like, super efficiency is is still just with the small market teams to really commit to.
1: Well, I think that, you know, pr- pretty much every team now has bought into analytics on some level or another. I don't know that this really would would mean, oh, this is like a watershed moment for analytics. I mean, uh, maybe to a certain extent, because we have the teams that have won with analytics have generally tended to be the big market teams that subsumed the lessons of analytics like the Red Sox. You think of them, the Astros. You haven't seen the A's win a World Series. You haven't seen the Rays win a World Series. So I think there would be a little bit of a novelty there where we had not seen before this a, a small market team that was doing it. Uh, but but I think in general, I don't think it's going to change. You know, some other team looks at it and thinks, "Oh my God, we should do what they're doing." It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they, some team looked at that in two thousand eight, right. <laughs> and, and and now you know they've they've had a decade plus of being able to kind of put it in place everywhere in baseball, not just the small
2: market. I, I sort of wonder baseball seems hung up on the past. I mean, we know that we talk about that all <laughs> the time. People are, you know, always bemoaning change in baseball, but. But what is the what is the glory days of baseball with this steroids era? I mean, what are we talking about exactly? I mean, baseball's (laughs) going to change Um, and I think it's all for the better. The 1950s and 60s, I guess, are what most people
1: sort of look back in the days of Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and people like that. And the game is played differently now than it was then. And a lot of that is due to analytics. And there's a lot of strikeouts, not that many balls in play. Bullpens are a much bigger part of the game. You don't see guys throw complete games almost ever. I've often wondered why not try to build a team like the 2015 Royals or someone like that, where you zig while everyone else is zagging, uh, because it's going to be undervalued. You know, mm-hmm. if, if if the scales have tipped so much that analytics darlings are getting paid what they're worth, that must mean that players that are maybe doing something differently are now the bargains, and you go out and get them,
0: yeah, I think that's right. and i I think you know there's a there's a different issue of, you know, the um paying players what they're worth and and owners being willing to commit money and how that works. But within the system of these teams have a lot of money. These teams have less money. You know, I've been a fan of a small market team my entire life. And I'm glad that there are ways that small market teams can work within that system. Because I've also like, you know, you'd see a guy come up, he'd become a star, you'd have to trade him away because you couldn't afford him, or because you needed to build the next team because you couldn't just, you know, sign a, a free agent. So I think, that the thing that the Rays and the A's have done well there is competed even when they didn't have the resources of the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. Um, And there's something really important about that in continuing to cultivate baseball fans.
2: I think that's a great point. And it's actually counterintuitive to a sport with no salary cap. I mean, you would think that the natural presumption would be you spend a lot you you do better and I think you know we have seen that to a certain extent you know with the Yankees and that's a lot of reason why you know I think the Yankees were so hated for so long was because they just seemed to be buying whatever was out there you know Roger Clemens Randy Johnson you know every year and it was more or less working and and that wasn't good for the game. I think having the fact that you can compete without a budget, and we've seen this in the past, we saw this with the Royals and it is possible because the other way where if, if money just with no cap, if money just gets you wins, then baseball becomes English soccer. And Mm -hmm. we just know before the year that certain teams will not compete because they don't have enough money. And I don't think anyone wants that. It's not right. good for a game at all. Yeah, I think the only the only thing to kind of push back
1: against is the idea of, well, you do have rich teams and you do have poor teams, but why are the poor teams poor? Are they are they not spending because they can't, or are they not spending because they don't want to? And we'll never know the answer to that. I would love it if we did know the answer, and I think some of the financial stuff around not having fans and the pandemic season and go
2: as the ripple yeah, effects uh, of that I mean, going forward to next season and beyond... Uh, Are they not spending because they lost all their money in a Ponzi scheme? There's no way. Possibly. (laughs) We just don't know. Who
1: who can say? Um, But I do think that's a big frustration. You know, uh, a certain segment of fans that would like to see everyone spend more and give more money to the players and maybe, you know, dip into whatever coffers that these owners happen to have. Now, it's it's very easy to spend somebody else's money, right? You know, when uh, when when it's you that's potentially taking the loss, it's a little, uh, you, you start to get skittish about it. So I, I think that that's, that lack of transparency about revenues related to baseball and ha- just how much money teams have to spend is going to create problems like this where it's like we can't feel totally good about extolling the virtues of a team that's built on the cheap because we don't. Know whether they're just being cheap bastards or if they're actually working within financial constraints, and probably the answer is a little bit of both.
0: I think I've just I've just come upon the solution. I'm going to run for office on a platform of forcing the baseball owners' books open, or they lose the antitrust exemption. Who's behind me? I love it. All right, we're going to make this happen.
2: What can office you are you running for imagine?
0: In this I don't know. Office, you know, undefined. <laughs> Some <laughs> office.
2: <laughs> for of office. baseball. Yeah,
0: for office. Sarah for office. 20,
2: She's 22? got great ideas yeah. about baseball. Yeah,
0: but that's it. No other ones. All right. I think we can end this here. The World Series starts tonight. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil.
1: Sure. So we've talked at length about the college football season and just the the chaos of it. Uh, the Big Ten is about to s- start their schedule, I believe, next weekend, which will kind of make college football uh, almost whole again. I believe um, Pac-12 is still not playing, but at the same time, you've got a lot of teams in place. But what's interesting to me is even with college football being played, you don't have the same level of pageantry. You don't have the same level of, you know, students. There there, there are some people in the stands. It depends on the state. It depends on the conference, all of that. But at the same time, uh, you're not seeing the same level of, home field advantage in college football. And I can prove it statistically. So if you look at last season, home teams in uh, the FBS won 66.2% of the time. This year, they're winning 62% of the time. But I think that kind of undersells the the gap uh, because... Obviously, better teams tend to play at home as a general rule in college football. So if we adjust for the strength of the team using college football references, simple rating system from the previous year, we'll find that last year, if you had evenly matched teams, play uh, one, one playing at home, that team would be expected to win about 61% of the time. This year, same level of difference in terms of talent between the two teams, the home team only expected to win 53% of the time. That's about an eight percentage point gap uh, in in home advantage between basically having a normal amount of fans, normal, you know, college football pageantry and, and uh, pomp and circumstance and all of that versus what whatever we're calling what we have this year. So that had me thinking, wh- what about the other lessons we've learned about home advantage during this weird uh, pandemic season or set of seasons that, that the different sports have had this year? What lessons can we learn about the value of having fans in the stands? Is there value to it? And I think uh, it, it's a lot of conflicting, weird messages. So from that number in college football, you would think, It does matter to have uh, fans supporting you in the stands. But if we look at baseball, during the regular season, the home team won 55% of its games during the 2020 MLB regular season. However, if we look at the NFL this season... so. Uh, in 2020 overall the home team has won 52% of its games which is down it's roughly the same as it was last year but way down from 2018 61% that year and generally uh the the long term average going into the 2020 season was about 57% uh, the home team won 57% of the time in the NFL however if you break it out so as you guys probably know uh, teams have been letting fans into the stadiums a lot more recently i uh, uh, starting, Some teams have been doing it the whole time, but uh, certainly starting around week five or so, so the past couple weeks, you've seen an escalation, I think a market escalation in the um, number of fans that have been allowed in the stadiums and also the number of teams that are allowing fans to come to their home games at all. So if you look at the the home winning percentage through week four of this season, it was only 50%. So basically it was a kind of a coin flip as to whether the home team or the road team would win. However, since week four, the home team has won 57% of the time, uh, which is almost up to the, basically at the historical average. Now some of that is because better teams have been at home. Uh, if you look at our ELO ratings, we would expect since week four, uh, the home team to win about 58% of the time that takes into account the quality of the teams, you know, injuries to key players, et cetera. So they're still doing a little bit worse than we would expect overall, but it, it is much more in line with what we would think. So you would look at that and be like, well, only when the fans came in, did they receive that boost to home advantage. Now if you want to get really weird, let's talk about the NBA and the WNBA who played in bubbles. So no one was at home, yet they also designated home teams and and this is where we get really crazy. So in the 2020 NBA season before Play shut down because of the coronavirus. The home team won 55% of the time. In the bubble, this is before the playoffs, so during that little, like, seeding stretch, which was still part of the regular season, the designated home team, again... Literally no difference uh, between them and the other team, except, uh, you know, the fans that they showed on the scoreboard were were from their team uh, and, and the piped in cheering, you know, kind of responded to their actions, not the opponent. But for all intents and purposes, same arena. They're both at neutral sites. The home team in those games won 56 percent of the time. So the home team had a better winning percentage. In the bubble games, where there were no actual home teams, it was all psychological. Than uh, they had during the previous part of the regular season, in which they did actually play at home like normal in front of fans. And it's not really an artifact of of the teams that were you know picked to be the home teams because. Roughly the same ELO rating on average for the home team and the designated road team in those bubble games. It was just a quirk of how it worked out that 56% of the time, the designated home team won. And then in the WNBA, you have a very strange phenomenon. So overall, uh, uh, and we had a story on this uh, about midway through the WNBA season. If you had looked at the winning percentage for home teams through August 22nd, 64% of the time, the designated home team, arbitrarily decided home team won, which was much higher than any of the previous five seasons in the WNBA. Their home advantage runs around somewhere 58 60%, something like that on average last year, 61%. However, from August 23rd through the end of the regular season, the designated home team won only 30% of the time, a collapse that left the home winning percentage for the designated home team in the 2020 WNBA bubble at exactly 50%. So they played 132 games and the designated home team won 66 of them for a 50% winning percentage. I don't know what you make of any of this, but I just find it fascinating that you have all of these different undercurrents saying like, is it playing at your home stadium? Maybe baseball would be evidence of that, but is it having crowds? Well, maybe Pro football would be evidence of that. Or is it psychological and just believing that you're the home team? Well, that may have been true at the NBA bubble, and it certainly was true halfway through the WNBA bubble, but then they collapsed horribly down the stretch of the regular season. And then there ended up being no advantage to being the 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 designated home team at all in the WNBA bubble, which is exactly what we would have expected going into the season. We would have expected it to be 50-50 because they were not actually home teams. So anyway, that's my uh my deep dive. Advantage. Did you look at So did you look at hockey on a curiosity? I didn't and the reason why is because their restart uh, was already just through teams already into the playoffs. So I wanted to look at regular seasons only okay. in there instead of the weird like some of our teams are playing for seeding, some of our teams are playing in the playoffs, but I am curious as to how it worked out. I'll have to look that up. Cuz cuz
2: hockey you 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 do get an advantage like uh, unlike Yep. You know, some of the other sports, you get an advantage in that you don't have to put your players on the ice first so you can match up lines and you have this shorter change to your defensive net. So I'd be curious if that was right. But then again, I think we've looked at in the past and the NHL home ice advantage was 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 almost nothing. I was going to
1: say, yeah, the NHL playoff especially in the playoffs, their home ice advantage was basically negligible. They're the the sport that has the least home ice advantage, even when they're actually at home. So I don't know what I would predict coming out of hockey.
0: I the whole thing is so is so fascinating to me. The WNBA thing was really was like so weird through August and then that it collapsed is really funny. Maybe this is another, um, another win for small sample sizes um, and to not maybe put so much stock in them. Although I also wonder, you know, they're at the very end of the season um, playoff teams were resting players, but there were still some fights to get into the, the playoffs. So yeah, that's just, It's it's wild to me. We have a story coming later this week about how um, the Big Ten won't have fans at its games, but home field advantage already was terrible in the Big Ten. (laughs) Like over the past decade, home teams in the Big Ten win less than in any other Power Five conference, which I think is bizarre. Um, It is.
2: I, I do think it's significant in college football. I mean, it. It has changed the calculus in college football. I think the advantage is gone. And I think you know the analytics always showed it was like three and a half point advantage in college versus roughly two and a half for pro. So it was already there. And I think you're seeing I mean, just look at last week, like Mississippi State and Tennessee were just kind of have these famous home field advantages with loud, crazy stadiums, just got you know wiped down at home and in, in very winnable games. I think you'll see more of that. I think in the past, you know, whether it was like going to Penn State or going to some of these schools, that was just very intimidating. That will be significant. And then you have it's funny with the the select group of fans, like I was watching the Friday, the Houston BYU game, and Houston had some fans there. But by it was a little bit of a blowout. And by the fourth quarter, all the fans were BYU fans just loudly. <laughs> and you could hear them. And it was clearly firing up the team. So it 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 had backfired limited audience in Houston's case.
0: <laughs> That's like you you can come to the game, but you can't leave before the end of it. You know, going into all of these seasons, I was one of the things I was most like excited about, aside from like just sports being back, which was a good thing, um, was finding out more about home field advantage. You know, I thought we would see some really clear trends and it turns out it's just a big mess, which is, we know, uh, we know
2: less now than we did before. Yeah.
0: Doesn't that seem right for this the year? One
2: sport, <laughs> uh, college basketball has always been the sport where I think the advantage of the home court, and which is always what makes the tournament so interesting that you take that away. You really change the sport in March Madness compared to what it's been for the for the whole year. And I think that's part of the reason you see a lot of surprises there. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens there, because that is a sport where it plays a big impact. And you know, it's inside. And I I don't know if there's been announcements of how they're gonna has anyone checked in on college basketball? Is it happening? (laughs) (laughs) How do you do college basketball?
0: (laughs) I went to look for a team's schedule, a team we wanted to write about, and they their schedule isn't posted for this year. I was like, yeah, yeah, that that sounds right. right. <laughs> we'll we hope to see you soon, college basketball. Um, all right, well, that's really interesting, Neil. I think this is something we'll wanna we'll we'll be like digging into more as we get more data on home field advantage. Cause I'm fast I think it's really it's so funny to think about and talk about and the things you assume are true maybe aren't um, and I love that that's what we do here at Five Thirty Eight, right okay well that will do it for this week's show thank you so much for joining us we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday if you like what you heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts you can also email us at podcast at com to let us know what you think our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett Tony Chow is in the virtual control room and our podcast commissioners, Chad Matlin. For Neil and
2: Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.